This morning we have a chance to continue our lessons on Paul's theology about uh, uh, women's roles in the church. And I started last week and I, I began by telling the story about the fact that I'd been billing this class, saying this class is coming. And I had had a lady come up to me a couple of weeks before class and say, let them have it. You tell those women the way it is. You just lay it out there and don't sugarcoat it and just help them understand that, that they're women, not men, and men are the leaders in the church. And then it was just one week later that a lady came up to me and she said to me, I'm so glad you're teaching this. I left the Baptist church because people don't think women should be leaders in the church. And I hope you just go out there and explain it the way it is that women should be leading right alongside men. So I had it from this side and I had it from this side. And I um, taught the first half last week. I taught the second half this week and I had a chance this morning to bump into a, a lady who was one of the initial people who said to me two years ago, would you please address this issue? And I said to her, I said, I'm glad you came back today. And she said, yeah, I think you copped out last week. So <laughs> she said it with love and affection in her voice. Um, so I said, well, that was last week. This is this week. We'll see how I do. So with that, I have a question. You know what I really don't like? I hate it when people try to tell me what I'm thinking. Okay. I know what I'm thinking most of the time. It's right here in these gray cells in my brain. And I just don't like it when people come up to me and say, well, I know what you're thinking. And then they proceed to tell me. And 99% of the time they're wrong. Or I would be explaining something and someone would say perhaps something different. Like I was not explaining it right. And I said, time out. You, know, you don't know what I'm thinking. You would not make that judgment or that assumption if you knew what I was thinking. You're familiar with the expressions, you need to walk a mile in another man's moccasins or shoes. You know, there's something to be said about trying to get into how someone else is thinking as opposed to taking our thoughts and imposing them on someone else. It's not fair for me. Hi, Chris Niels is here this morning. It's not fair for me to say to Chris, I know what you're thinking and impose on him what my thoughts are. That's not fair to him. Right? Well, I tell you that because... It's a dangerous game, using the word game here lightly. It's a dangerous game, gambit, to try and do that with Scripture. Let me give you two words that we need to look at. These are bad theology issues. Exegesis and eisegesis. Now, who has heard of the word exegesis? Everybody has. Who has heard of the word eisegesis? Relatively few. One of these words is good. One of these words is to be avoided. Let's explore them for a minute. Exegesis. E-X. Um, ek is the Greek word. It means out of. We get 
exit from it. Because that's where you come out or go out from a place. That's the exit sign. If you want to go out, you go out there. Ek. Out. The, uh, uh, so exegesis, it, it actually is a composite of two Greek words. Ex is out and the Jesus comes from the Greek for to lead. So to, 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 to do exegesis is to take a Bible and to take a text within the Bible and, and to let that text drive the meaning. In other words, we want to ferret out from the text what the text means. Does that make sense? Exegesis of scripture is to take a scripture and to, to ferret out from that scripture its meaning. To be led to the meaning by the passage itself. Now, eisegesis is another word that has the Greek word E-I-S, which is into in the Greek. And eisegesis is where we read into the text our meaning as opposed to letting the text read out from its meaning. Does that make sense? We do exegesis, we do good theology when we take our Bibles and we read the Bibles and we find the text and we try to study the text to understand what the text has to say to us. We do eisegesis, we do poor theology when we take what our opinion is and we read it into the text so that the text takes on our meaning instead of our meaning coming from the text. Now that's a, um, that, that sounds easy enough in a sense, oh we don't want to do that. And, and yet it's, it's, it's not as easy as it sounds because folks are constantly accusing other folks of one or the other. I don't hope to drive home how we do it on every passage this morning, but I do hope to sound the alarm on the importance of understanding that we want to start with Scripture and what Scripture has to say and let it guide our thinking instead of our thinking determining how we're going to read the Scripture. Right? Okay. So that's what we're going to do. And one of the words that if you, if you go to a seminary or, or do much theology reading, one of the words you're going to learn uh, is a phrase actually by, that was uh, put out in theological circles by Hermann Gunkel, who was a Lutheran Protestant uh, German theologian, lived in the late 1800s, early 1900s. And in 1905 or so, he issued a publication where he used this phrase, sits im Leben. Now, it used to be if you wanted to be a serious theologian, you had to read German. Because for, since Luther, a good bit of Protestant theology has been written in German. And so a lot of the theological phrases that are still used in theological discussions and circles are German in their heritage. If you want to talk about a Christian worldview, a lot of, of theological people will not use the word 
term worldview, which is one that has in the last 20 years caught on. But they'll use the older German, Weltanschauung, which is, is the same concept. There are just these certain German phrases. I can remember it was a, a, an Old Testament class that I had where I first learned this phrase, sits in Leben. It's, it's, it's German that, that says, in essence, you want to put the passage into its original life form. It wants to, 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 to you, you put the passage into its original context. So if it's poetry in the Bible, you read it as poetry. If it's prose, you read it as prose. If it's historical narrative, you read it as historical narrative. If it's a letter of Paul, you read it as a letter of Paul. You try to put it in its life context, but it's not limited to the form of what it is you're studying. It's also the historical context as well. So if we're reading theology uh, uh, and we come across this phrase, then we're coming across a phrase that is challenging us to make sure we're first reading the passage or, or the scripture within the context in which it was written before we then try and apply it to the context of where we are today. Does that make sense? Alright. That's what we want to do today. As we go the next step in looking at these Pauline passages. On the role of women. We want to put them in their sitsim leaven. We want to put them in their original context. We want to understand. We want, the, we want to go to the scriptures for their meaning and their context. And let it dictate what our meaning is. As opposed to us taking our culture and our understanding and our opinions and trying to read them into the passages. So our goal today is to do solid exegesis, not eisegesis. We're going to understand the sitzim leaven. We're going to understand the life context of some of Paul's difficult passages on women. And that's where we need to start. We need to start by understanding the culture and the, the, the world in which these passages were first written. Because in some ways it was very like our world, but in some ways it was very different than our world. So that's the introduction. You ready? All right. Now, if I haven't lost any of you, we're going to keep going. If I have lost you, that's okay. Now's the time to get back on board. And how better to do that than with a good cultural question. Are you up on the latest fashions? <laughs> have you read the latest Glamour magazine? Okay, that's not the latest one. That's the only one I could find that didn't have language that I was ashamed to put up here. <laughs> I think they cleaned it up because they had Miley Cyrus on the cover. <laughs> it's really hard to find a glamour magazine that you can even put the cover up in Sunday school. A little easier with Vogue. Do you read these fashion things? Some of you do. Some of you don't. I can tell. <laughs> By the way you're reacting. <clears throat> Yeah, I know what you're thinking. Yeah, you don't either. You're right. Okay. <laughs> um, 
You know, do you watch the runway and the fashions? Do you know what are the in colors? I'm, I'm really not up on that. I, 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 you can tell. Okay, I had that coming. Per, uh, I'm being told lavender is in, so uh, I'm feeling. Purple is the new black, so I'm feeling pretty stylish. Uh, the, the, do you keep up with that? You know, you can do it through magazines. You can do it through TV. You can watch TV and pick up the styles. You can do it through a, a fashion runway week thing or whatever. Uh, I like if I'm going to try and figure out what is stylish, which I try to do about every five years just because it just seems appropriate. I do it with mail order catalogs. Because you get those catalogs in the mail. You can kind of look and see what's stylish. Or you can just walk through Dillard's and see what they put on the dummies. Because you've got to figure they wouldn't be putting it on the dummies if it wasn't stylish. But there are trends. There are fashion trends. I did my hair this way on purpose this morning. You know why? Because I wore it this way in high school. I just thought, you know, every 30 years or so stuff comes back. This could be in style today. Probably not. Fashion is not something that we have cornered the market on. And by we, I mean 21st century Western civilization. Fashion has been an issue for a long time. It is not a new thing. Fashion was an issue at the time of Paul. There are... This is a picture of a, a bust, a, a, a sculpture face, head. This is Livia. She was the wife of Caesar Augustus. Augustus was Caesar when Christ was born. Livia, his wife, had this bust of her head made who knows when, where, how. But it was found in the ruins in Ephesus. Okay. Now, she was quite the styling maven. Her hairstyle was the talk of the empire. She was famous for this little doohickey thing right there in the front. I think maybe her nickname was Knothead. I'm not sure. But she would do those curly things in the back and she'd do that bun, a low bun tied in the back. And she had this thing that she'd do with the hair knotted right there in the front. And women were intrigued and would always look to the imperial women to see what the latest styles were. They might do it through the statues. They would also do it through the coins. Here's a coin with Livia on it. And you can see now on the coin, the the bump on the head's not quite as pronounced, but it's still there. And she's got that low riding bun. It's it's, it's a fascinating thing. If you get into this stuff, one of the great books is by A.T. Croom. And this is not a a Christian book. This is just secular history. It's called uh, uh, Roman Clothing and Fashion. 
And in this book, uh, Kroom sets out lots of different styles and lots of different uh, 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 clothes. And you can actually see some of the, the clothes that they wore as they've remade them and, and how the garments fit and how you really put on a toga and who really wore togas and what the sandals were like and all sorts of interesting information. But one of the things that they'll put on here is you can see in the chapter on women's clothing. Let me put this into... You can see women's clothing. Can you make that out, sort of? Let's see if I can make that a little bit bigger. Women's clothing. These are some of the ways that they would wear, cover their heads. We might call them hats, but they weren't really hats. Because a hat fits snugger and has substance to it. These are head coverings because they do their hair in those wildo braid extravaganza things you know you got that big knot right there you can't just wear any kind of stetson uh nets were in style for a while but these were head coverings and uh, uh this one for example right here is from a, a villa in pompeii uh, uh, uh so you have a chance to see that one here's another one from pompeii and Pompeii, you might recall, was uh, about an hour and a half south of Rome. Pompeii was the city that was destroyed in the first century by a volcano, and so it was covered up. We have a, a, a good bit of evidence of what those folks lived like and looked like because they've been able to uncover it. Roman fashion is something that they're able to trace and chart and talk about the way the styles changed and the way folks would go to the coins to figure out how the in crowd were wearing their hair and their togas and their, their, their clothing. It was a really big deal. Now, part of this culture at the time included the fact that modest women would wear a covering over their heads in public. Now, you might be sitting there saying, well, what about Livia? She didn't have one in the statue. The statues are not considered by the scholars to be totally authoritative in the sense of dress. They didn't use the hairpins in them that they knew women wore. Statues followed a convention. And in fact, one scholar I read said that they believed the statues like that were done to show women how to wear their hair. But when women went out in public, they would always have something that covered their head. Here's a coin of Luvilla. She was the wife of Drusus Minor. Remember him? Nephew to Drusus Major? <laughs> Drusus Minor, you probably don't know because he did not wind up becoming emperor. He would have after Tiberius Caesar had his wife Luvilla not had him killed. She poisoned him. Uh, it seems he was on to her and her paramours uh, activities in such a way that uh, uh, things were not real good at that house. <clears throat> um, anyway, Luvilla, she is wearing a, a head covering, as you can see, above her braided hair. This is what modest women wore. It was part of their life and part of their culture. In classical antiquity, McGinn writes this, you were what you wore. Now the name of that book is Prostitution, Sexuality, and the Law in Ancient Rome. Let me tell you why that book is significant enough for me to put it on the cover. 
Rome had very specific dress codes. And when I say Rome, I mean not just the city, but the empire. Had very specific dress codes for who you were and what your station in life was. They did not have an ability to just go say, okay, give me your social security card or give me your driver's license. I want to make sure this is who you really are. The way they could tell who people were, were by the way they dressed, by and large. And that's significant to us because the, you know, this is climbing into their culture. Look at some of the issues that faced women in the first century, in the time Paul wrote. Consider, first of all, social status itself. Are you a slave? Are you a freed woman? Are you a married woman? To be married, your husband had to be a citizen. If you're a slave, you are owned. And as a slave, your master had complete rights to your body. You were a chattel in legal terminology. You were a possession. You were a shovel, a wheelbarrow, a refrigerator. You were an ox. You were... A legal possession. Now, our thoughts of a slave have been um, culturally infused with the history of America's tragedy with slavery. If 200 years ago you had come to the South, you would most likely be able to tell the difference between a slave and a free person by the color of their skin. But that's our bad history. That's not the Roman history. Slavery was not based on ethnicity for Rome. You could be blonde hair, blue eyed. You could be brown skin, white skin, yellow skin, black skin. It didn't matter. If you were a slave, you were a slave. So how could you tell a slave... There were clothing rules. If I had a slave, I had every right in the world. In fact, it was common practice for men who owned female slaves to use them sexually. It wasn't a taboo. It was, ex it, 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 it was the way it was. In fact... More men, supposedly, used their slaves for sexual liaisons than they did their spouses. Because the spouse was deemed to be too significant for that. And the men were to take their lust out on the casual things of ownership. That's the culture. Now let's take it a step further. There were some women that weren't slaves that were free women. Free women frequently could make a good living as a prostitute. Oh, lots of freed women. I'm not saying most did. Lots of freed women had other ways of going about ha having their money or their, their living or whatever they did. But prostitutes and freed women were sometimes in the same group. 
Prostitution was legal. It was taxed. And the way you could tell a prostitute was by certain articles of clothing she wore. And you dressed like a prostitute. In Rome, you were what you wore. Your signs and symbols of social status. Now, matrons, on the other hand, women married to the Roman men, their husbands would have all of the dalliances while they were expected to stay home, be quiet, and tend to the household. Legally... The husbands possessed all the power until about 44 B.C. In 44 B.C., women started to have some measure of financial independence where they could keep their own dowry. And once women started able to possess money, possess dowry, and have some financial independence, things started to change. Promiscuity started to change. Because historically what had happened was a double standard. Men were allowed to dilly-dally all they wanted. Both hetero and homosexually. While women who were married were expected not to. It's the way it was. And this is the culture into which Paul is writing, but with a little bit of a twist. Because as Winter explains, Bruce Winter has a wonderful book. I didn't bring my copy. Roman Wives, Roman Widows. There was an arrival of what some historians call the new woman in the empire. This was a reaction to centuries of, of what I've described to you. Once women started getting some financial independence and were able to own property and were able to, 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 to take their dowries in the event of an unfaithful husband or, or a divorcing husband, I should say, women started asserting themselves. And one of the ways they asserted themselves were the matronly women decided that they were going to live the life of the new woman. Free. And so what they would do is they would be sexually promiscuous themselves. They would dress like prostitutes. They would take possession of men. They might even prostitute themselves even though they're matrons. They would dress in vulgar and suggestive ways, wearing the clothes of a new generation. This started back under the reign of Caesar Augustus. And Augustus, one of the reasons we know a lot about it is because of a lot of what he enacted as laws to try and counter these problems. Augustus enacted morality laws. That said, husbands can no longer kill their wives for committing adultery. Husbands had had that power before. Because the wives are doing it. But it's illegal. And not just the husbands, but anybody can turn the wife in for committing adultery. And she can be punished. He took it a step further and said that husbands have an obligation to report their wives within a certain time period. Because historians believe husbands were pimping their wives out. 
marriage had been uh, on the decline, women didn't want to get married. Because who wants in that relationship? Procreation? Please. They didn't want children. Children create a matron who's in charge of the children. You don't have children. You're footloose and fancy free. You don't have to worry about your husband going and have a dalliance with the 18-year-old beauty. While you're sitting there fighting the I had three kids body. And so Augustus, Caesar Augustus put laws into place that, that gave financial incentives for marriage. Financial incentives for the mother to actually have the children. There are... Abortion was legal. Wasn't very safe. Contraception was legal. Wasn't always efficient. You run a big risk of killing the mom... When she has the abortion, because of how toxic the, the, the process was, but it was also mechanical. In fact, in the, when the U.S. Supreme Court in Roe v. Wade decided that, that there is, in essence, a constitutional right of privacy, which, which extends to a right of, of reproductive uh, decisions... One of the bases within that long opinion was, hey, we came out of the Roman system and in Rome it was okay to do it. So the financial incentives were put in place to try and help uh, uh, the, the, the empire continue with marriage, with, with productivity. Dress codes were put in place. There are legislative dress codes. From the time of Augustus. If you are a prostitute, you cannot wear the stola that a matron can. Matrons, you wear the stola. Prostitutes, well, I'll tell you, you go out on the Roman streets, it wasn't a crime to accost a woman if she wasn't spoken for. So you've got to have the right people with the right dress, with the right credentials. Matrons and prostitutes need to be distinguishable. It's interesting to read the new woman. You know, this, this was Augustus's reaction. Well, what do you think happened after that? The new women turned around and said, Oh, no way. We're going to be even worse. So by the time you get to a, a, a fellow named Seneca, actually we call him Seneca, Lucius Anansius was his real name, Aeneas, I'm sorry, Lucius Aeneas. He wrote a, a, a portion, and, and he was a contemporary of Paul's. He wrote a portion to, uh, in, in honor of his mother. Listen to what he says. He says, non t maximum, oh I'm sorry, let's do it in English. He says, <laughs> unchastity. That's uh, sexual impurity. That's adultery. Unchastity, the greatest evil of our time, has never clashed you, he's writing to his mother, with the great majority of women. Jewels have not moved you, nor pearls. Hey, do you think... It's only in the 21st century that women's charms have been purchasable at a price. It's 
been around a long time. To your eyes, the glitter of riches has not seemed the greatest boon of the human race. You who were soundly trained in an old-fashioned and strict household have not been perverted by the imitation of worse women that leads even the virtuous into pitfalls. You've never blushed because you had children. Stretch marks did not bring you to shame as if it taunted you with your years. Never have you in the manner of other women whose only recommendation lies in their beauty, try to conceal your pregnancy as if an unseemly burden. Nor have you ever crushed the hope of children that were being nurtured in your body. Abortion. You have not defiled your face with paints and cosmetics. Never have you fancied the kind of dress that exposed no greater nakedness by being removed. You didn't have that little flimsy see-through thing. In you has been seen that peerless ornament, that fairest beauty on which time lays no hand, the chiefest glory, which is modesty. Modesty. Um, that's the world where Paul was living. That's the world where Paul was writing. Now let's take a moment and let's look at a passage of scripture, for example. And let's do our exegesis. Let's, now that we've sits in Leban, we've climbed into the worldview. We've got the context into which he's writing Let's try to read the scripture for what it said originally and apply it to our day instead of taking our culture into the scripture. We don't have time to go through all of these. Let's just uh, take one. We'll see if we've got more time after that. Let's take 1 Timothy 2. In 1 Timothy chapter 2, Paul's writing to Timothy who's in care of the church at Ephesus. That's where the statue was of uh, Levia that we looked at earlier. And look at this passage, and let's exegete it a little bit. Paul said, I desire that in every place the men should pray, lifting holy hands without anger or quarreling. Likewise also that women should adorn themselves in respectable apparel, with modesty and self-control, uh, not with that braided hair, gold, pearls, costly attire, but with what's proper for women who profess godliness. Clothe yourself with good works. Let a woman learn quietly with all submissiveness. I don't permit a woman to teach her to exercise authority over a man. Rather, she is to remain quiet. For Adam was formed first, then Eve. And Adam was not deceived, but the woman was deceived and became a transgressor. Yet, she will be saved through childbearing if they continue in faith, love, and holiness with self-control. Now, I want to divide this passage for us to understand it into three different parts. I want us to take this part out of the middle. And first look here, so we'll go there first, then we're going to go here second, and then we're going to go to the middle, third. 
Because what we've often done is taken that middle section and built our theology on it without putting it into the context of what's before it and what's after it. So we want the meat, but we need the bread to make the whole sandwich. Okay? Paul says, women should adorn themselves in respectable apparel. Women should be dressing like women. The issue that was a huge issue were the women who decided that they would dress like prostitutes. Because they were going to be the assertive woman. And they were going to flaunt who they were and flaunt what they had. And this was a cultural thing that was going on. The new woman was appearing. And they were loud and they were bold. And they were sexually promiscuous. And they could do whatever they wanted to do because they had the independence to do it. And Paul's saying, time out. That's not what women need to be. Don't come to church dressed like Cher's nightclub act. You dress with modesty. Show self-control. Don't get all uptight over wearing that hair with the braids and the buns and all the rest of it. Don't spend all your time and energy on that. The gold and the pearls and the costly attire that Seneca so disdained. Instead, dress with what's proper for women who profess godliness. Dress with good works. The same issues down here. She will be saved through childbearing. Oh, that struggled theologians. Still does. A lot of theologians, they sit there and say, what on earth is he talking about? Uh, surely it can't mean that women get to go to heaven if they have babies. Oh, some theologians say, well, it's talking about the fact that Mary gave birth to Jesus. And so, no. The Greek word save, where's Rachel? What's the Greek word for save, honey? Uh-huh. S-O-Z-A. Sodza. It also means to heal. It means to, to uh, uh, you know, when, when, when the lady's got the issue of blood and she touches the hem of the garment, she was saved by Jesus. No, she was healed. It's the same word. Okay. You, you want to die Go back to Rome and have an abortion. You want to die? Go back to Rome and use some of their contraceptives. It was very, 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 very unhealthy, very risky for the women. Your health, your safety, your salvation, not salvation in an eternal sense, but, but your physical saving is going to be through having the baby. Oh, you say, yeah, but women died through childbirth. Not even remotely close. See, Paul's saying, don't sit there and think that you're going to be the hotshot woman who is going to not have the children, you know, dress like the whore, do all of these types of things and all of this. He says, that's not the business of the church. And this passage about women 
learn quietly with submissiveness and he doesn't permit a woman to teach her to exercise authority and his reasoning for that is sandwiched in between this because we've got to understand it in light of the culture that was going on and what was happening with those women. Now here's where I cop out. There you are. I'm not going to tell you what to believe. That's your job. I'm up here to teach what I've got here. And you've got to make some decisions here. You've got to make decisions. And, I, and I'll, I'll prompt you. I, heavens, I can argue every side of it. I am a lawyer. <laughs> but I'm, I'm here to tell you that you've got to be really careful that you don't take your theology and put it into the Scripture. Your culture and put it into the scripture. You need to read the scripture and determine what it means. When Paul talks to the Corinthians about women don't need to pray and prophesy with their heads uncovered. Women shouldn't be in public with their heads uncovered. He doesn't want a woman standing up dressed like a prostitute proclaiming the works of Jesus. I don't either. And I don't want David Fleming to dress like a Chippendale dancer to proclaim the wonders of Jesus. That's a reciprocal coin. It just hadn't been the problem. So we don't see it. But I think it's a fair derivation from the meaning of the Scripture. <laughs> Too many things could be said. Next week, let's talk about baptism. Um, I entreat you to read some of the books that I've put in the bibliography of the lesson. Because, I, I, I mean, we could spend, we truly could spend six, eight, ten weeks on this and just scratch the surface. Another reason I'm copping out is because I can't justify to you where I land on this issue without more time. And we simply don't have that time in this class. So I apologize for that. But my view is, uh, y'all are all incredibly bright people. Uh, these are the resources that I would suggest you look at. There may be some others. Next week, I want to talk about Paul and baptism. The week after that's our Christmas party at the law firm. I'm going to speak, I think, that week on the Lord's Supper. I want you to be in prayer because we have a lot of Jewish people that never go to church that will come to this class that Sunday morning. And the Lord's Supper is a wonderful lesson. I've, I've already gotten some indication from multiple childhood preachers of mine who will be here as well. Ken Starr will be here. Uh, uh, a number of different folks will show up for the Christmas party that come in early and go to this. So be in prayer. Points for home. Paul did say in 1 Corinthians 9, I've become all things to all people that by all means I might save some. And I do urge everyone in here, male, female alike... That you've got to ask yourself, what's the priority driving force in your life? And the priority driving force in your life has to be to share the gospel of Jesus. To fit into God's plans. And so you've got to examine these issues yourself. We've got some very gifted and talented women teachers in here. And you need to be using your gifts and talents. I had a very dear woman say to me the other day, young lady. Can I pray over a meal with you here? And I said, of course, why not? Because I've been told before I can't. Okay. You need to find where your place is before the Lord. 
and you need to walk in it. And don't be a shrinking violet, but don't be loud and bombastic either. There's a purpose behind it. And the spirit in which things are done reveal more about the integrity of what's being done than the actions themselves. Paul did say there's neither Jew nor Greek, slave nor free, there's no male or female, you're all one in Christ Jesus. As I said last week, we're called to his service, not our agenda. See, it doesn't matter who we are, it doesn't matter where we came from, if we are in him, we're his body, so we do his bidding, not ours. And then our final point is, I'm going back to it, study. I don't want anybody to walk out of here discouraged by saying, oh, I can't, how am I ever supposed to understand scripture? I've got to be reading all of this other stuff. I've got to understand the sits and leaving. I've got to understand German stuff. I don't, how am I ever, why isn't it so easy? Okay, don't get discouraged. The fundamentals are pretty easy. John 3.16 is not rocket science. But the complexities and the intricacies and the beauty of what God's given us in scripture should never be anything other than a great well of, of resource that we get to dwell in for the rest of our days, knowing we'll never plumb the depths fully. Would you pray with me? Lord, thank you for everybody in here. And I do pray your blessings on them, men and women alike, old and young, that you will reach out and, and, and grow to, to full fruition, everyone in here, that we as a church body will be one that fosters that growth and that sees people become what they need to be in your kingdom so that your will is done on earth as it is in heaven. Bless my friends here today. Please, Lord, in Jesus' name, amen.